Hashem Hashem Nasir and Atzliach, Shiur Torah. Good to be here at the uh, Breslov Center in Aventura, Baruch Hashem. This is going to be the uh, last year for a little while. We have a uh, Pesach coming up in a few days, Bezat Hashem. We're a uh, time that uh, each Jew is obligated to mamash bring themselves to a uh, mental and spiritual state of mind as if they just just left Egypt. And we have the Leila Sedel Monday night and Tuesday. And because we're in the exile, unfortunately, uh, we also have uh, two Yom Tovs at the end. So it ends up being Monday and Tuesday Yom Tov. And then again the following week, Monday and Tuesday Yom Tov, which is the days of the Shior. And then Bezat Hashem, I'm hoping that we come back after that. Uh, but Bezat Hashem, just uh, pay attention to uh, my Facebook and website and WhatsApp groups to make sure before you come here, always be in touch with me before you come, uh, or reach out to Vimesh or Sunny, and uh, you'll always know where I am. Uh, but uh, either way, more importantly than anything else, is what we have to deal with today. We are only a few days away from the beginning of the journey to fulfill the ultimate purpose of the world. Now, in Egypt, where we were there for over 200 years, 210 years, out of the 430 years that Hashem decreed, originally was 400, then it says 430, nonetheless it was originally supposed to be 400, but uh, the uh, Chazal says that the uh, count, why is there, why is this 400, why is this 430, why does it even end up being 210, is also very similar to the argument of what happened with the confusion that the uh, that the entire world had with the prophecy that after the Choban Bet HaMikdash, the first one, Hashem said that the second Bet HaMikdash was going to be built within 70 years. But yet, everyone got it wrong. Everyone got it wrong, and that's why in the story that we just heard just a few months ago in Purim about Achashverosh, the Megillat Esther begins with a story of how he has this big party, and many people don't know, anyone that didn't watch the Shior and Megillat Esther, we, I think we did at least uh, one, maybe two of them, about Megillat Esther, the secrets of Megillat Esther. Many people don't know that the reason why Achashverosh actually had the party to begin with was because he was relying on the prophecy in the book of Jeremiah, and he thought that the uh, prophecy was not going to come true, which was the prophecy that the Bet Mikdash was going to be rebuilt. Because according to his math, the Bet HaMikdash was supposed to be rebuilt at that time. And everyone, all of the Goyim were scared that Hashem was going to fulfill this prophecy and Ami says going to become the leaders again. So as soon as the Bet HaMikdash was not built, and he thought the prophecy is not coming through, so he said, ah, look, Hashem uh, left. Hashem left the Jews. And he was celebrating. So he wasn't like a kofel, like many people are today, where they say there is no God. He was saying there is a God, and we're scared of him. He just left the Jews. Which in essence is what the New Testament has said for the last 2,000 years, despite many Christians being very nice people, the actual New Testament is not a very nice document. At least not towards the Jews. Anyone that actually reads it sees that it's not exactly a uh, Semitic type of book. 
in on the best case scenario, they say that only 144,000 Jews will survive at the end of times. So whether we have 13.2 million or 20 million Jews or 200 million Jews, whatever the number is, because of course there's many Jews that don't even know they're Jews and there's also many Jews that we don't know that they're Jews because they're in different places around the world, uh, especially places like Africa. Point being is that the New Testament says that only 144,000 are going to survive. Seven and a half billion people approximately in the world. I saw a recent uh, world counter and obviously all of these things are, you know, just guesses. Uh, they said that there's approximately 7.477 billion people in the world. And uh, out of that is a very small minority of Jews. And out of all of that, only 144,000 of them are actually going to survive. How many going survive, we don't know. Apparently every Christian survives. So that's almost 2 billion people, which is very favorable to them. Obviously, it's all shtuyot, nonsense. But the point being is that many of us that have Christian friends that are very, very nice people, and some of them even love Jews, more than some Jews love Jews, many of them don't even know this because most of them don't actually read the New Testament and study it. Most of them go to church once in a while. They... Uh, listen to what the reverend or the uh, priest says without a clue of whether it's true or not. Maybe here and there they'll read a page, here and there they'll eat like a parasha, if you will. But they're not going to read and study the details. And that's the reason why many of them are clueless, and that's the reason why in my experience of dealing with both Jews, non-Jews, converts, Noahides, I've dealt Bo Hashem with a lot of different types of people. In every single case, and with no exception, I've never met two Christians with the same religion. Meaning, I've never met two Christians that actually believe the same thing as each other. Never. Each one had a different understanding of the New Testament. Each one, one of them believed that J.C. Penney was a Mashiach, Another one believed he was a prophet. Another one believed he was a rabbi. Another one believed Hashem believed he was an idol of some kind, you know, a god. All types, everyone had a different belief. Someone believed a nice guy. Everyone, everyone believed something different. And then even within the chapters themselves, if you delve into the language, everyone has a different understanding. This is unlike Torah Yisrael. This is unlike Judaism. This is unlike the Torah that we have, where even though Chazal themselves say that there are 70 faces to the Torah, it's not 70 different understandings. Anyone that understands it as 70 different understandings is misunderstanding himself. What is it? It's 70 different ways that you can view the same thing that each one will support the other. So for example, Amos gave me some Coca-Cola before the Shio, Skele Mitzvot. Now, I can look at this cup and I say this cup is full. That's one view. This cup is full of liquid. It's another view. Technically, it's the same thing. Another one says this cup is full of something black, which is also true. That's already three. This cup is full of cola. Where four? This cup is full of Coca-Cola. 
Where's five? This cup of full of soda. Six. By the time we finish this year, it's going to be 15, 20 different views just to view the cup. But each one supports the other, meaning it cannot contradict the other. It's not one says, drive on Shabbat, the other one says, don't drive on Shabbat. It's not that. Seventy different ways of things that support each other. And Torah of Am Yisrael is endless, it's divine, and it's something that each and every single time we look at it, we get more. Even if you learn the same thing, you learn the same thing with even more details. Now our series of Pirkei Avot has been really successful, Baruch Hashem. Many people have told me that this is by far the best uh, that we've done, Baruch Hashem. But before we ever get to Pirkei Avot, we first have to understand what is Matan Torah Be'emet? Hashem gave us a Torah in Mount Sinai and unlike what most people think, like when we were little kids, we all learned that, oh yeah, Hashem went to the Goim. He said, listen, you want this Torah? He said, well, what does it have? So he said, it has, you're not allowed to murder. They go, oh, we're, not, we're not interested. Ishmael has to murder. Okay, so he went to Esav. He says, you want the Torah? He said, no, what does it have? He said, well, you're not allowed to steal. Said, no, no, it's part of our nature. We like to gamble. We build casinos. Casino is a form of gambling. Right? It's gambling. And gambling is a form of stealing. Because the other guy doesn't want to give you the money. Even though it's fair and square according to the rules, it's still stealing nonetheless. Saf says, no, we have to steal. We have big casinos planned in China. We have big casinos in Las Vegas. We have big casinos in Sodom and Gomorrah. We have some casinos in Atlantic City, but they're all garbage, so probably going to go bankrupt. But anyway, Esav says no good for us. It comes to Am Yisrael. You want the Torah? How much? It's free. All right, we'll take two. We have the oral Torah, we have the written Torah. But that's the story we know. Even though part of that is true, Hashem did come to all the nations, to the leaders of the nations, meaning the angels of the nations, the kings of the nations, not to each and every single individual. But nonetheless, the real detailed part of the story that we're missing is that it wasn't really an option. It wasn't really an option of, do you want the Torah or not? Like, if you want it, good. If you don't, okay, I'll find somebody else that wants it. That's not actually what happened. And we learn this in a couple of different places. First and foremost, we learn it in Yetziat Mitzrayim itself. The story of Pesach is that Am Yisrael, after being slaves for 86 years of hard slavery, out of the 210 years, we weren't actually slaves for 210 years, we were slaves of hard labor, Avodat Parech, and Avodat Parech means labor without any fruitful results. That's what Avodat Parech literally means. doesn't mean you just work hard. Many people work hard. You go to any construction site, a bunch of people work hard. You don't call that slavery. We also built the pyramids. How come they call that slavery? And they don't call building uh, the next skyscraper slavery? Because that wasn't part, that wasn't the biggest part of Avodat Parech. One of the main things that the Rishayim, Rishayim, Machshimam, Vizicham, the Egyptians did to us 
is that they would make us build infrastructures and then they would destroy it. Just to destroy our morale and make sure that we don't have any type of unity because when we have, when Am Yisrael has unity, it has power to do anything it wants. To make sure that it breaks our morale, to make sure that we're not confident in anything that we're doing because we have nothing, to, we're not getting paid. So we can't say, oh listen, I made 20 million bucks off this building. Can't even say I'm getting a salary because I'm not getting that. Say, okay, you know what? I'm not getting a salary. I'm not getting millions. I'm not becoming part of the rich and famous. Let me at least tell my son, listen, son, you see that bridge? Abba built it. Abba built it. Look, that bridge. Abba built it. You can't even say that. Why? Because these Rashaim and Rashaim would destroy it. So you don't even have the mental satisfaction of saying, I built that. So how did the pyramids get built? The pyramids got built with so much murder where each time one of the Jews did not meet his quota of making a certain amount of bricks and putting him in place, they would take his child and put him instead of the brick. So by the time the pyramid was built, there was no kids left to tell the story, Abba built it. Or you didn't even want to talk about Abba building it. You were ashamed of the whole thing. So even satisfaction we didn't have. But even with all of these tests, many of the Jews did not want to leave Egypt. When Hashem sent them the Goel, Moshe Rabbeinu, who gave them the code words, Pakod Yifkod, the code words that Yosef HaTzadik told his brothers to say that the Goel, the Mashiach of, that's going to take you out of Egypt, He's gonna, how are you going to know he's the Mashiach? How are you going to know he's to be the one that's going to take you out? That Hashem actually sent them? He's going to say these specific code words. Pakod Yifkod. Hashem didn't forget you. He's bringing you out. What was the biggest miracle? Anybody could figure out those two words. What was the biggest miracle? What's the Chidush here? If you all remember, Moshe Rabbeinu was not only a person that was stuttering. He was also, didn't have the ability to speak well. Meaning that there were certain letters in the Hebrew alphabet he wasn't able to say. Like the letter P or Fe, which is the equivalent of let's say P and F, he couldn't say. Pakod Yifkod, it depends on those, on those letters. So when he's trying to tell them something, they can't understand. But then all of a sudden he says both words perfectly. It's like, oh, that's a miracle. Everything else he can't say, he can't, he can't pronounce the word. But these two words he could say perfect. That was part of the miracle. But once he came, Am Yisrael is excited initially before they get the last test. And then he leaves. Moshe Rabbeinu leaves and he disappears that day's Hitler makes the stringencies the punishments the slavery much more, more harsh and Am Yisrael is looking for Moshe Rabbeinu 
If you look at chapter 3 of Shira Shirim, Song of Songs, it says, I looked but I couldn't find. It's referring to Am Yisrael is looking for Moshe Rabbeinu. We were looking for him, but we couldn't find him. Where did he go at the time of need? The Levi tribe knew where Moshe Rabbeinu was, but they didn't say anything. Because they knew that Am Yisrael, that didn't really dedicate themselves to Torah, like the Levi tribe did, they needed to prove to Hashem that they deserved the Torah. If you're learning the Torah and you're chasing it, like you're chasing treasure and you're chasing money, like Shlomo HaMelech says, then we know you value the Torah. I'm going to give it to you. But if you haven't learned Torah, you don't really show that you care so much. You're going to get tested and said. One of two options. One way or another, you're going to get emunah. You're either going to get emunah from learning Torah, or you're going to get emunah from Hashem testing you. Or you have extra. You get both. So, Moshe Rabbeinu disappears. Am Yisrael is looking for him. They can't find him. Eventually, obviously, he comes back. The plagues begin. We have a couple of shiurim that we talked about. The plagues, the details of the plagues. Vimesh Sadiq is cutting up the shiur. Every day for the last couple of days, he's been sending just a clip of each one of the plagues. So no one is burdened with the entire shiur. Chas Shalom, you watch a two-hour shiur. Watch, five-minute clip, talks about a plague. But at least everyone can show up to let us say that with something on the table. Listen, you know what the plague of blood? That's how Am Yisrael got rich. When I learned that chidush, I loved it. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I thought the plagues were just punishment, punishment, punishment. I didn't know that's a money maker. Okay, it's a good business. We should try this in America. So, yeah. So, plagues, little by little, eventually we get to the plague of darkness. And Chazal says it wasn't darkness like you have here normally at the end of every day. It was darkness that you can feel. Darkness that's so thick, no one was able to move, except the Jews. Whatever position you were in, you stayed like that for three days. So if somebody was going to the bathroom, they were in a sitting position for three days. If someone jumped in the air, wanted to dunk the ball, the basketball, they were paused in the middle of the air. Could be a good picture, you just can't see it though. <laughs> Make millions off the picture. If someone was yelling at someone, you were stuck yelling at someone. But if that wasn't enough, Chazal says that all of the scariest things that can be the noises and the spirits and everything surrounded these evil Egyptians. So for three days straight, they're getting the life scared out of them. But the Jews, walking freely, right next to them, no problem. Wherever the Jew works, wherever the Israelite at that time walks, there's light. He can walk freely. But even then, they still didn't do tshuva. Even then, there were still many that were not ready to leave Egypt. Yeah, you had a question?
Even then there was a few that were willing to actually do tshuva and continue walking towards the light while the rest said, oh, look, Hashem destroyed the Egyptians. Now we're rich. Now I got the house. All my friends are in a good position now. Let's take a vacation finally. 210 years we're here. Let's finally we have a vacation. And they didn't want to do tshuva. So when Hashem said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt in order for me to give you the Torah. So you will be my nation. You will be my firstborn. And when people said no, it wasn't like today where you see a Mechalel Shabbat driving a Ferrari on Shabbat. And Hashem doesn't do anything right away. He gives him time. Or you see somebody stealing and Hashem lets it go. Bernie Madoff and Machshemo stole for 20, 30 years, 60 billion dollars. Hashem didn't do anything yet. He waited. Gave him an opportunity to do tshuva. But in those days, Hashem didn't have that, uh, that ability to give tshuva. Why? Because everything was in plain sight. When there's no doubt that Hashem Yidbarach is running the world, it eliminates Hashem's own freedom to give you the ability to do tshuva. Now, because there's a safek, we don't see Hashem's open miracles as open as it used to be. So since you always have a safek, you always have somewhat of a doubt, I'll give you time to do tshuva. But eventually time runs out. In those days, there was no time. Oh, you don't want the Torah? No problem. You'll be worse than the Egyptians. At least they're going to live through the darkness plague. But the 80% the best estimate, meaning the most lenient, said that 80% of Am Yisrael died in the darkness plague. Am Yisrael, not the Egyptians. That's the best estimate, meaning the best case scenario. In Midrash Mi'am Loez, they talk about how some believe it was 99.9% of Am Yisrael died in the darkness plague. There was originally 300 million Israelites and only 3 million left. So here is the first time we see why the parasha starts with Vayihi. Vayihi means, why? Like crying. It's a remez, it's a hint that Am Yisrael was sad when they left Egypt because 297 million of their brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, cousins and friends just died. I wouldn't be excited either. You're lucky if you know anyone that's left. So here's the first time we see the Torah wasn't exactly a free choice. The second time we see is when we get to Mount Sinai. In the Gemara, it says that Hashem brought Am Yisrael to Mount Sinai, and it says in the Pasuk that they stood under the mountain. What do you mean they stood under the mountain? If you ever see a mountain, you don't stand under a mountain, you stand next to a mountain. But it actually said they stood under the mountain. Why they stood under the mountain? 
Because at the time of Matan Torah, Hashem changed nature, as we know it, and He made the mountain cover Am Yisrael like a chuppah. So instead of the mountain being like this, and we're all standing next to it, the mountain curved. And it became like a chuppah over the entire three million Jews that were there. Some say there were more, but whoever was there was covered. And the Gemara says, Hashem said to Am Yisrael, if you want to accept the Torah, good. You accept the Torah. If you don't, you'll just die here. The mountain will fall. Once again, we see it wasn't free choice. Once again, we see it wasn't free choice. So when we all arrive at Lela Sedel, we have to bring ourselves to the understanding that although Hashem has a lot more leniency on us because we're a much weaker generation than any other generation before us, we have much more desires, much more tests than any other generation before us. This by no means is an ex- get out of jail free card. This by no means is an excuse to just do as you wish and you'll be all right. No place in the Torah from Parashat Bereshit all the way to the end of the Tanakh will you ever find Hashem saying, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. It's on me. I'll let him go. Ah, he's a sinner. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I got it. It's my boy. I love him. Doesn't say that. Nowhere in the Torah does it say that someone convinced Hashem to change his mind. We have a hard time convincing each other to come to the shiur. We have a hard time to convince our wives or our husbands to do what we want. We have a hard time to convince our bosses to give us a raise. We have a hard time convincing the store to give us a, a $1 discount. What, show us $10? Give me for $9. What do you care? I only have $9 on me. $9. I don't have 10 I have 10 It's like I have to walk five minutes to my house to get the other dollar. Just give me for $9. No, 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 $9. No $9. If I give it to you for $9, I have to give it to everybody else for $9. You can't convince the guy to show him a place for a dollar discount. IRS sends you a letter. Before you open the letter, you already have Tisha B'Av. What do they want? What did I do? I'm an honest person. I'm only an accountant. I'm only a lawyer. I'm only working here. I'm only working there. What do I make? I make $500 a week. What do I make? What do they want from me? Just a high... You're already thinking about what's going to happen. You don't even know. They're just telling you, Dear sir, we received your taxes. You don't know what happened. But Hashem and if you open the letter, and it says, We've decided to audit you. It's like Choban Bet HaMikdash. Because you're thinking... They're going to find something. I don't know what they're going to find, but they must find something. I mean, they're not coming to audit me for no reason. They must know something. They must already know, and they're trying to see if I'm going to lie to them. You already have this whole story worked up in your head, 
and you're all stressed out. What are they going? What am I going to do? I have to hire a lawyer. I can't afford a lawyer. Maybe I want to afford my friend. No, he's not really my friend. I haven't talked to him in six months. And you have this whole story worked up in your head. And what are you going to do? And you can't sleep at night. Why? Why do you have all this stress? Because deep down inside, what do you know? You know that you can't even convince the IRS to change their mind. Whatever they find, they find. You're guilty, you're guilty. And you know you can't convince them otherwise. So if you can't convince the IRS, you can't convince the store clerk at the shawarma place, you can't convince your wife, you can't convince your boss, you can't convince your kids, you can't convince anyone to do anything you want in reality. What makes you think you're going to convince Hashem to let go of a zillion sins you've made throughout your entire life for no reason? Why? Because you're funny? Because you're cute? Because you have long hair? Because you have short hair? Because you have blue eyes? Why? Why would, he, why would he just let it go? Why? What makes you think you can convince him? Who told you this nonsense? That makes you think you can convince him to let go of one avera, one sin, not not all of them, one, one sin. You can't convince the shawarma clerk to let go of a dollar. You think you're going to let him? You're going to convince him to let go of ten thousand dollars you won from a gambling trip because you gave staka? Like he needs your staka? He couldn't run the world without your staka. This is one of the things we need to get to the Seder with that in mind. Stop trying to convince Hashem to let go of things and start trying to figure out how do I make sure that if Mashiach were to come today, I'm going to be part of that 20%. The 20% that left Egypt. The 20% that survived Mount Sinai. The 20% that accepted the Torah, that said, How do I make sure I'm one of them? How do I secure my job? Why do I... I don't play with my life on anything else. I don't jump out of planes without a parachute. I don't speed 200 miles an hour on a slippery road. I don't play with my life. Why should I play with my soul? And this is one of the things we have to arrive at Pesach with that in mind and to teach it. Because the number one obligation you have in Pesach is to tell the Pesach story. To tell the family, especially if you have children, if you have children, your children are more important than guests. They're more important than guests. And just so you know, Pesach is one of the holidays that you need all of the chumot. It's the one holiday you have to be very, very strict. Other holidays were very, very lenient. In Pesach, we're ultra, ultra strict. And the reason why is because every time somebody violates Pesach, it's karet. It's the worst possible punishment. You eat chametz, it's karet. 
serious, serious sin. So now, a lot of people, myself included, I was a little kid, we were in Israel. At the end of Pesach, we always looked forward to this uh, party in Israel called Memuna. It's the Moroccans hold a big party after Pesach. Usually they have it in a park. And everybody comes together and there's food and barbecues and tents and music and, you know, Khafla. It's Memuna. I always thought everybody's just sick of, of the uh, matzah and they want to have a grill. But in reality, you could have a barbecue during Cholam You don't need the Mamuna for that. So then I ran out of excuses. What? <laughs> I didn't know why you have the Mamuna. Why do you have such a big party at the end of Pesach? And the reason why is because the, the previous generation of Moroccans were ultra, ultra religious. They were so religious that no one would have or go to anyone's house during Pesach. No one would have any guests because no one was able to rely on anyone else if they're keeping Pesach. To the level that they're supposed to. Now, since Moroccans love to have guests, they want to say at the end of the Chag, listen, there's no offense. It's not that I don't trust you or I don't love you. I love you. It's just a Pesach. It's Karet. So now let's have Memuna. Memuna is party. Everybody's invited. Everyone's invited to the party. Yeah, Muflata and all the food, the stay, everything you want, everyone's invited. Why? Because no Karet. Shem today there is Karet anyway because people walk around not modest, but it's a different story. But nonetheless, it's the reason why we have this party, because again, the uh, Chag Pesach is a very, very, very serious holiday, and the most important important mitzvah is to tell the story of Pesach. Tell the story of Pesach. The second, and also if you have kids, number one, if you have guests that they're after, you have to tell your kids, number one, the story. If you don't have any guests, then you obviously you have to... Still keep going. doesn't matter if you have guests or not. You have to tell your kids, you have to tell your wife, tell yourself. Tell the story of Pesach until you fall asleep. That's the mitzvah. Meaning that if you ran out of stuff to say, open a book, open a midrash, start reading. Learn what happened. But the most important part is not just to say the story. Oh, Moshe Rabbeinu was nice and he helped us out. No, no. Get to the mindset of how do I make sure I'm one of the 20%. That's one. And I'll answer your question in a second. Second part is very, very important, is to eat matzah. Now, this is one of the mitzvot that uh, doesn't have much luck. And the reason why is because most people don't really know the real halakha. Now, you eat matzah, you have to eat 30 grams on leda sedel, four times. Now, how many of you, with a show of hands, actually, I won't, don't bother raising your hand, how many of you actually weigh your matzah? Most people don't weigh their matzah. So how do you know if you eat 30 grams four times, it's 120 grams? How do you know? You don't know. That's the problem. Now, what's 30 grams? If you're eating the square matzah, the machine-made matzah, 30 grams is almost an entire square, almost. An entire square. Meaning you have to eat four of these entire squares. Who eats four of these entire squares? If you eat two of those entire squares, you have no room for the rest of the food. So you have a very, very hard time fulfilling this mitzvah. So one of the things that I learned, uh, and I've been doing for the last few years, is to get soft matzah. 
There's something called soft matzah. I think a um, what's it called in Hebrew? There's a name for it in Hebrew. I forget. Uh, but anyway, it's soft matzah. In, in Israel, there's a few places that make it. In, in, in America, I only know of one place. Uh, the soft matzah that uh, is like pita in essence, but uh, uh, Yemenite. I don't think it's, it's Yemenite. It's possibly. It's possibly Ftela is Yemenite? I don't think it's Yemenite. It may be Yemenite. Maybe Yemenite. Maybe Moroccan. Whatever. Whoever it is, soft matzah. Point is, Ftela. Ftela it's called. Yeah, maybe Yemenite. Um, anyway, it's a uh, it's soft matzah. It's like uh, almost in essence like a pita, obviously, but it's kosher for Pesach. Uh, and because it's soft and thick, it weighs a lot more. So in essence, you uh, if you weigh it, you only have to eat a small little slice. That's only 30 grams, which in essence means that one circle, which is almost the equivalent of eating one full matzah, one regular square, is equal to the 120 grams, or even less. So it makes it easier to fulfill the mitzvah. The only issue is that they're very, very expensive. Very expensive to buy, and very expensive to ship, because you have to ship them overnight. But listen, the one thing about holidays, and the Torah in general, is that if you're already going to do them, you should do them with emunah, because if you don't do them with emunah, you're only going to suffer. You're going to suffer that everything's expensive, you're going to suffer that everything is long, you're going to suffer that you're not working, you suffer that you're not watching TV, you're going to suffer with a lot of different excuses of why the Yitzhara is going to convince you to suffer. So, if you're already going to believe that Hashem Bach is the same Hashem Bach in the Torah, you should have no problem with money, because you know that in the Gemara, Masechet Rosh Shana, and also Masechet Beitzah, in both places it says, that Hashem decides what Parnassah is going to give you on Rosh Hashanah, from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah, but that money that He decides to give you does not include the money He's going to pay you back for whatever you spend on Shabbat, holidays, and mitzvot. Which means, if let's say Hashem decided to give you $100,000 this year, and you decide, I'm going to spend, let's say, $52,000 on my Shabbat. Every week I'm going to have the Shabbat of the Year award. 52 Shabbatot a year. I'm going to spend $1,000 on Shabbat. $1,000 on Shabbat. That's not included in the 100000 Hashem now has to give you 152000 If you buy one suit for Shabbat, yeah, but if you buy a new suit every week, it's, you know, if you have the Amunah. If you're really buying it for Shabbat, yes. But if you're buying it because you want to look good for your friends, if you're buying it for Shabbat, sure. Anything you buy for Shabbat. But in essence, again, it's a, it has to be used on Shabbat. Not only on Shabbat. You're allowed to use the rest of the week, but it has to be used on Shabbat. So, very, very important to spend money on Shabbat if you believe. But again, it all, it's all based on you believe. Like somebody came to Rabbi Yisrael from Salant, he said then for the Rav, I just heard your lecture, you talked about Shabbat, you talked about uh, Chagim, you talked about Hashem is guaranteed to give you the money back, and you have a Munah. Now let me ask you a question for the Rav. If I believe 100% that Hashem is going to pay my bills, is He going to pay my bills? The side from Salat says yes. He goes, really? 100%. You sure? I'm willing to bet on it. He goes, okay. The guy comes home, takes his tools, throws them in the closet, goes on his couch, and starts resting. His wife says, honey, what are you doing? Go to work. It's already 8 o'clock. No, no, no. I'm not going to work. Rabbi said, 
Hashem's gonna pay. What Hashem's gonna pay? Tuition is due. This is due. That's due. He goes, no, no, Hashem's gonna pay. Okay. A week passes by. Hashem didn't pay. Wife says, no. Hashem's gonna pay. Until he pays, use the savings. We have savings. We have at least a couple of months worth of savings. Another week. Another week. A month. Two months. We're almost running out of money. Hashem hasn't paid yet. We're a week before we're running out of money. The wife is very, very nervous. And the husband too. He runs to Rabbi Yisrael from Salant. He says, Kvodarav, I'm in serious trouble here. You told me that Hashem's willing to pay my expenses. I've been sitting in my house for two months waiting for him to pay. He hasn't paid. No. Rabbi Yisrael says, no, but he's going to pay. Maybe he's going to pay on the last day, but he's definitely going to pay. I'm willing to bet on it. Because why are you willing to bet on it? I'm willing to bet on it. Go, if you want, go buy a lotto ticket. I'll pay you the reward already. The guy goes, buys a lotto ticket. Million dollar reward. He comes to the beast side, says, he's going to, that's how he's going to pay? He's like, I'm willing to pay you the reward for this lotto ticket if you want. But since you haven't gotten the reward, I'll give you half. I'll give you half a million. I'll give you half a million. When you get the million, you can pay me back. Guy says, okay. Abisai says, go back to work. He goes, why? If you really believe he's going to pay you the million, you wouldn't sell it for half a million. Then, if you really believe that Hashem is going to pay, why are you coming to me, Bechal? If you really believe that Hashem is going to pay for your Shabbat, why are you looking at how much the apple costs? Why are you looking at whether it's Coca-Cola or it's RC Cola, which one is cheaper? Why are you looking if it's on sale or not? What difference does it make? If you really believe Hashem is going to pay, what difference does it matter? How much it costs? How much this, how much that, if you really believe. If you don't believe, don't try this at home. But the most important part is, Achim Karim, make sure that when you arrive at the holiday, don't look at the receipts. It's always expensive. Enjoy the holiday. It's the beginning of the purpose of creation. Questions before I start? This is just the introduction. He said we have to lachmir. Okay. So I spoke to some people, even though the spark is a little icky in New York, you want to lachmir, like don't even take a shower on the chag, even though I heard it's allowed. I'm not, I'm not sure, like, exactly all the alachot. No, no, no. I, I said lachmir, I didn't say ad alachot. means be strict with the actual alachot. Be strict with what actually exists, what there's actual laws that say you're not allowed to eat chametz. You're not allowed to eat taref. You're not, you know, certain things you're not allowed to do, don't do them. But as far as not take showers, who says that? Who says don't take a shower? Why, there's chametz in the shower? Oh, it's a different story. That's every holiday. That's every holiday. It's every holiday. It's a different story. It's different. Kitniyot, if you are Ashkenazi or you're Moroccan, then you don't eat kitniyot. 
Right, you don't eat rice. But if you're not one of them, if you're not Ashkenazi, which I don't think you're Ashkenazi, I think you're Sephardic, what do you follow? You're Sephardic. Okay, so it's not relevant to you. Uh, and as a matter of fact, even, even the Ashkenazi, many of them uh, in America, you know, keep this uh, because of their, you know, their uh, forefathers kept it. But many of them actually are not doing it. You know, some of them are not doing it. No, no, no. It's something, it's it's not, Kitniot is, is, is a problem of its own. It actually makes the holiday almost unbearable for a lot of Ashkenazim. Because it makes it very, very difficult for them to find any food. It's very, very difficult for them to eat. Everything is, you know, it's very difficult to eat. And it becomes, it becomes instead of a Yom Tov, it becomes Yom Ra. It's, you know, it's Bebet, I'm not joking. It's, it's, it's a really difficult, the, the Pesach is a very difficult holiday for Ashkenazim. Very difficult holiday. Chabal. Chabal, it's not, it's not. Okay, well, you know what? Eating, eating kitniot is not a big deal. But malbim berabim is a big deal. To embarrass somebody in public, loses you lose a share of the world to come. So someone that yells at somebody else in public for, for eating kitniot, he loses a share of the world to come. It's much worse than eating kitniot. But the point being here is that, again, there's humrot, you know, that, that are, there's something that's valid, something that has a source, has a, uh, you know, a makor in a Torah, not just something that people create because, I don't know, they, they want to pretend like they're tzaddikim. The holiday is not supposed to be terror. The holiday is not supposed to be miserable. It's supposed to be a fun time, a happy time, and it's supposed to be a time you enjoy with your family, with your friends. It's not supposed to be misery. You're not supposed to be Am Yisrael in Egypt. You're supposed to be Am Yisrael that left Egypt. You understand? But if you want to treat yourself like you're one of the slaves, go, good luck. Good luck to you. That's not, that's not what Hashem said. You're creating a new Torah. If you're suffering on Pesach, you're creating a new Torah. That's not what the Torah says. It doesn't say suffer. It says Yom Tov. Yom Tov means good day. You have to eat meat. You have to eat good things. So... So, so the uh, the important thing is to know that you're supposed to enjoy the holiday. You're supposed to say the uh, the story of Pesach. You're supposed to also, when you're drinking the wine, make sure that you're leaning. You know, it's a good idea to put a pillow on your uh, on your uh, chair, so you're leaning on it. You know, a lot of times I remember when I was a kid, we used to think that leaning to the left meant like this, just turning your head. So we just drink like you know, like we had like some type of stiff neck. All of us look like we had stiff neck, you know. But it really, it's not. It's what you're supposed to do. Is leaning is like you're sitting like a king. You're sitting on a couch like a king, so you're leaning back. But if you drink without leaning to the left, you have to drink again. So make sure you lean. So that's right. So the point is, is that if you don't know all the details of all the halachot, you should go to a place that someone knows it. You shouldn't like not do it because again, it's important to. Follow the law and enjoy your holiday and, and, and not just try things out. It's good. Little by little you learn it. Little by little you get stronger. Little by little you uh, become more and more prepared. Uh, I mean, generally speaking, you're supposed to learn all of the halachot of the Chag, usually a month before the Chag comes, not a day before the Chag comes. But, Mahu um, Hashem, the learning never ends. Now, once we realize that Pesach is a time of joy, but at the same time, a time of reflection. The Mishnah that we're up to becomes much more relevant. Yeah, you had a question? Did you raise your hand? Oh, 
Oh, see, we're just going to make up the questions. Okay, but say that. All right, so, Mishnah, we're up to, we finished the first two chapters of Pirkei Avot. We are now in chapter 3, Gimel Aleph. Chapter 3, Mishnah 1. Akavya ben Mehalhel, Omer, Istakel b'shlosha dvarim, Ven ata balidea avera. Da me'ayin bata, Ulean ata olech, Velifne mi ata ati diten din v'cheshbon. מאין באת? מטיפה שרוכה. ולאן אתה הולך? למקום עפה, רימה ותולעה. ולפני מי אתה עתיד ייתן דין וחשבון? לפני מלך, מלכי המלכים, הקדוש ברוך הוא. עקביה בן מהלהל says, consider three things and you will not come to the grip of sin. Know from where you came know where you're going and before whom you will give justification and reckoning. Where you came from, from a putrid drop. Whither you go, to a place of dust, worms and maggots. And before whom you will give justification and reckoning, before the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed is He. This Mishnah is one of the foundational Mishnayot for anyone that's really looking to do a serious tshuva. Baruch Hashem, there are many people doing tshuva today. Unfortunately, I heard a sad statistic recently that there's more people leaving the derech than joining. But still, nonetheless, there's many people that are joining. There's many people that are coming back to Hashem. But one of the problems that I'm encountering is that a lot of people get started, start keeping Shabbat, Start keeping kosher, maybe even tarat mishpacha, and they stop. And they stay that way, parked. A year, two years, five years, twenty years, the guy is barely a Shomer Shabbat. Why barely? Because he doesn't really know all the halachot of Shabbat. So he really is breaking Shabbat, he just doesn't know. He's going to go to Shammayim thinking he's a Shomer Shabbat. But he doesn't realize he breaks Shabbat every week. Why? Because he doesn't learn Torah. So, Akavya Ben Mehalel is telling you, if you want to be a real Baal Tshuva, you need to know these three things. You need to know these three things and make sure that there are foundational principles in your mind, tattooed to your soul, to such an extent, there's not a moment goes by without you thinking about them. First and foremost, we're going to go over it briefly and then in detail. Know from where you came. Then know where you're going and don't, and then remember that eventually you're going to have to pay the bill. Know that you came from a putrid drop, meaning from a drop of semen. Know that at the end, regardless of whether you keep a good diet or a bad diet, whether you drink Coca-Cola or you drink water, whether you exercise or you don't exercise, whether you smoke or you don't smoke, whether you have stress or you don't have stress, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're righteous or wicked, all scientists and religious people can agree on one thing. When your time comes, there's nothing you can do about it. Your time comes. 
And everyone goes to the place where the maggots and worms eat them. But after that, is the important question. What happens after? If we're atheists, chash v'shalom, nothing. Turn to dust, eventually become a tree of some kind. They cut you up, make a book out of you. Nothing happens. Which in essence means you've lived a purposeless life. If someone says to you, listen, why? Steve Jobs lived a very purposeful life. He left a legacy behind. The home computers started thanks to him. iPods, iPhones, iPads, i this, i that. They almost gave him the letter I. Isn't that good? No, it's not. Why? Because he's not enjoying any of it. He's dead. He's dead. He's gone. And he was an atheist. At the end of his life, he did say that he realized that there has to be more. He did some form of tshuva of his uh, atheism. But nonetheless, yeah, that's when he got sick. That's when he realized that he's not on top of the world, that he's not God. But the point being is that if you came in thinking that you're going to make your mark, and that makes your life meaningful, you're wrong. You're not going to make a bigger mark than Steve Jobs. And anyone that looks at his life right now, no one, he can't benefit out of it. He's dead. So what if the iPhone came out? He's dead. So what if there's books written about him? He's dead. He's not enjoying it. He's not in Shemaim enjoying it because he doesn't believe in Shemaim. He believes he's dead. So he's dead. You can't say, no, he's in heaven looking down on us. No, he doesn't believe in it. He's dust. He believes he goes to dust. So he's dust. So that means that his whole life was completely meaningless. There's no point. But the question is, if you came here to eat, why were you born without teeth? Why does the baby come out without teeth? If your purpose in life is to come eat and enjoy this world, why are you coming so ill-equipped? You have no teeth. Technically, you should be born with the teeth of a lion. Ready to eat anything in sight, if that's the purpose of life. If the purpose of life was for you to have money, why is the vast majority of the population in the world, seven and a half billion people in the world, the majority of them are below middle class. The majority of them are actually in poverty. Why? If you make over $300,000, which is not considered a lot of money in America, you're making more than 99% of the world. More than 7.4 billion people you're making. Just $300,000. So if money was the real reason why we came to this world, why don't most people have money? Success... Most people are not successful. Most people are just average Joes. Fighting to keep their job. 
If marriage is the reason, why are there so many singles sending me countless emails, text messages, and phone calls asking me, can you find me a shiduch? Why can't so many people find somebody? I have friends from childhood. They're in their 40s now. Nice guys, nice girls. Can't find somebody. They're looking in the wrong places, but that's a different story. Why can't they find somebody? So what? There's no purpose to their life? Because they can't get married? If bringing children to the world is the purpose, why do so many couples spend tens of thousands of dollars, tears, and emotional suffering to hopefully have the blessing of having a single child and still can't do it? I have a couple of students got married, chupa, kiddushin, everything, ba'och Hashem. They can't have a kid. They've been trying already for two and a half years. Can't have a kid. My heart breaks for them. So what, they have no purpose? So they can't be. It can't be that all of these things are the purpose. Now if you remember in the Mishnah of Avot, in the beginning of chapter 2, we heard a similar Mishnah. From Rabbi Udan Nasi. Rabbi Udan Nasi said, Dama lemala mimcha, ayin roa ve'ozen shomad ve'kol ma'asecha besefer nikhtavim. Know what is above you, a watchful eye, an attentive ear, and all your deeds are recorded in a book. Which Chazal is explaining to us here is very, very similar to what Akavya is saying. But softer. Softer. Softer approach. Chazal explains the reason why there's a softer approach is because when someone's sleeping and they don't really know where they are, someone is in this world and he's treating life like it's a thing to do. I'm here, might as well live. I'm here, might as well go to work. So I can make money, so I can buy a house, so I can get married and have some kids read some books, go on vacation, eat, sleep, and do it all over again every day. And one day I die, and that's it. Someone is just going through life, going through the motion, without realizing or having even the minutest clue of why. A person in such a position is in a very, very dangerous state. So dangerous that he could live his entire life without even knowing why. Without ever knowing that he is different than the lion in the jungle. Without realizing that he's different than the cow he just ate. Thinking that him and the monkey are close with distant cousins. The difference between us, he doesn't like to wear clothes. 
But in reality, he has no idea why he's alive. He's going through the motion. But if he ever thought about it for a moment, he'd realize that everything he's living for is nonsense. It can't be for money. It can't be for his wife. It can't be for the husband. It can't be for the kids. It can't be for fame and fortune. It can't be for all of these things we mention and all of the reasons of what drive people to live. And the reason why is because we see that many people that have achieved those goals, as soon as they lost one of them, even though they may still have everything else, they still commit suicide. They still feel like they have no reason to live. Wait a minute, you lost your money, but you still have the wife, you still have the kids, you still have the career, you didn't get fired. You still have the knowledge, you're still smart, people still like you, da, 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 all these different things. You still went on vacation last year six times. You have memories of the lions in the, I don't know, in the jungle. Why are you killing yourself? Why? Because you lost a few million dollars? Big deal, make it again. Even if you can't make it again. Nothing else is the purpose? Why are you killing yourself? Why are you depressed? If there's no purpose, if, if your real purpose is to make money, if your real purpose is to have children, why are you upset when somebody else dies? He's not part of your purpose. What are you crying about? He or she is not part of your purpose. What difference does it make to you? So everyone that thinks about this for a moment knows that atheism is a choice. It's not a belief. It's a choice. You choose not to have a boss. You choose to believe in nothing because you don't want anything to obligate you. So when someone is sleeping, initially, Chazal says, go with the soft approach. Come Tzadik, come to the Shi'u Torah. We'll think about things, we'll talk about things. Divrei Chuchmah. We'll think about what's up there. Is there something? Is there a creator? We'll go through some Torah proofs. Oh, you like science? Okay, we'll do Shiur Torah. Torah and science. We'll show you how science you believe in proves the Torah I've been telling you about. We'll show you there is something up there. And after we show you that there's something up there, we'll also show you it cares about what you're saying because Ozen Shomat, it cares about if you pray to him. He loves you. You're his son, you're his daughter, he loves you. Come tzadi, come tzadika, come to the Bekneset, come to Lela Sedel. Chabad style. Come, come, just come. Driving on Shabbat, just come, come, no, come. Rabbi Udanasi Chasrasom didn't say this, but I'm saying to you in our language. But at the end he says, Vikol Maasecha Nichtavim. He says, oh, okay, but just so you know, everything you do is going to be written in the book. Just so you know. But it's still a soft approach. It's the soft approach of back in the day. There's a God, He's listening to everything, and He's going to write everything you do. That was considered the soft approach. Meaning, what's written everything you do? Meaning, there's going to be a punishment at some point. We're not talking about the punishment. We're not talking about Gainom. We haven't done a show about Gainom yet. 
We talked a few little tidbits of Gainom, but we haven't done a show about Gainom yet. Rabbi Udalasi says, I'm not going to tell you about Gainom yet. You're not ready for Gainom. Just come to the shul. Just come to the shul. Let me tell you there's a God. Let me prove to you there's a God. Let me explain to you that God told you that there's a Torah. And now that you know there's a Torah, you know that it obligates you, my friend. That's the first approach, Chazal says. I have to tell them the 13 principles of faith. One of those 13 principles of faith is that there is reward and there's punishment. So Abiyudan Asi says there's reward and punishment. But he doesn't give you the details of the reward and punishment. More on the reward side than the punishment side. Because you're new, you're sleeping. He just woke you up, you still got cobwebs on your eyes. Still have no idea why, why there's a difference between you and the monkey. Until last week, you were believing Darwin was right the whole time. Till last week, you were idolizing your lawyer or your doctor or your professor. Now you realize there's a God. Okay, so we're going to go soft approach, but just so you know, throw the book. That's soft approach. Akavya says, we've given you enough time, my friend. We've given you enough time. All you've done is just keep Shabbat. How are you keeping Shabbat? By sleeping the whole day. A year and a half already, you're just sleeping. You're still not laying tefillin the right way. Tefillin's over here, the tefillin's over here. It's everywhere except here. Your wife still walks around like she's on the beach by herself. Your kids still act like they're chilonim. They have a keep on, but Shem how they act. You're still stealing in your business. You're still gambling. You're still, you're still, still a shah. Last year, I said, okay, come, Mote, come, come, Sadi, come, come, just come. It's enough. A year and a half has passed. Mashiach's around the corner. Pesach is in a few days. The exodus is about to begin. And you still don't have an idea that you're not allowed to rip paper on Shabbat. Time has come. Kavya says, you have to start learning. We have to upgrade the shita. We have to go with the same thing, but we have to give you a little more details. What's upstairs? What's listening? What's going to happen? This is exactly it. First and foremost, you should understand that the only reason you ever sin is because you're arrogant. The only reason anyone ever sins is because they have arrogance in their heart and for a moment, they think they could beat the system. They think that they can convince Hashem, they go up to Shemaim, and unlike the, what happened with the Shwama guy, unlike what happened with the IRS, unlike what happened with every single argument they had with their spouse, or their boss, with Hashem, they're going to beat him. They're going to convince Hashem to let go of all the sins. Why? Because they heard some guy with a beard that calls himself a rabbi, say, don't worry, you're a tzaddik. Akabi says, it's all stuyot. You have no reason in the world to be arrogant. Why? Remember where you came from. Where'd you come from? Where did you come from? You came from a disgusting, repulsive, smelly little drop. That's what you came from. What are you so proud about? Your looks? Who gave you the looks? Your brain? Who gave you the brain? Your knowledge? Who gave you the knowledge? Your money? Whose money is it really? 
waiting. Hashem wrote, Lia Kesef Velia Zav. Neum Hashem Tsevaot. He said it to the Prophet, Mine is the money, mine is the gold. Except the money I gave Amos. Except the money I gave Betzalel. No. He said, Mine's the money, all of it. Even the one that you have in your pocket right now, it's his money. So what are you so proud about the money you have? What are you so proud about? The wisdom you have. How many so-called wise people have you seen or heard about that can't move their body? A lot of people consider the guy Stephen Hawking's a genius. Look at him. He looks like he's going through Gehenom in here. Look at his body. Look at his face. Look at his life. Who wants that life? He's divorced multiple times. I don't even know why anybody would marry the guy in the first place. From what I hear about, he is a repulsive personality. But even if he's a tzaddik, let's say, even if he's a nice guy, who wants to live in that body? He's considered smart. Means nothing. Means nothing. Who gave him that? But he uses that tool to go against God. So Kavya ben Mehalhel is saying to you first and foremost to remind yourself not to sin, to think about the beginning. Why do you sin? What's the trigger? You know, unfortunately, there's a very big drug problem in the world today. And unfortunately, some of it is infecting and infesting the Jewish world. Different keilot have different problems. Some have problems with intermarriage. Some have problems with modesty. Some have problems with all types of things. But unfortunately, the drug part affects everyone to some extent. There's one key lie I recently heard about had 10 overdoses in the community since Rosh Hashanah. I have a few students that have some drug problems and have been addicts for many years. And Baruch Hashem, I'm trying to help them by the use of the Torah. And I had a few old friends that I sent to rehab centers. In the days I had money, I was able to pay for these places. And I realized, once I learned Torah, that all the money that I spent, tens of thousands of dollars that I spent on rehab centers, was a complete waste of money. And the reason why, is because the rehab centers, in general, the principle of rehab, is wrong. It'll never work. And the reason why is because in rehab centers and in those type of psychotherapy type of institutions, they teach people that they're sick. They tell the drug addict that he's sick. He has a disease. You have a disease. Cancer is a disease. Drug addiction is a disease. Gambling is a disease. Now, I want you, you're in the medical world a little bit, right? Is there a cure for, for, for drug disease that anyone that Pfizer is working on or Bristol Myers is working on? No one has the, No one's even working on a cure for right. 
Why? Because there's no cure for a drug disease. Why? Because it's not a disease. Addiction is a choice. Yes, there is a physical aspect to it. But just like you see many people leave drugs, how do they leave drugs? They all go, every one of them, whether they're the ones that did heroin, cocaine, Percocets, Shemenachem, whatever else is out there. At some point, some people stopped. Not everyone, but some people stopped. What? It didn't hurt them? Didn't have withdrawals? They didn't suffer? Yeah, they all suffered. So how did they stop? How did they cure their own disease? They chose to stop. In so many words, it's not a disease. It's a choice. It's a yetzara. In Judaism, we call it yetzara. You have an evil inclination that's strong when it comes to drugs. You have an evil inclination that's strong when it comes to other things. Some people for gambling, some people for women, some people for sex, some people for homosexuality, some people for all types of types of things that we do. Some people for eating too much. But nonetheless, it's a choice. Why is it so important to me to explain to people that it's a choice? That drug addiction is a choice and not a disease. Because if I tell you what your psychotherapist is going to tell you and what AA is going to tell you, which is that you're sick, then you could automatically give up all hope. Since there's no cure, what am I bothering to live for? Why should I even bother stopping if I know I'm going to come back to it because there's no cure, which means at some point it's going to come back. Any minute it's going to come back. Okay, so I'm not going to do drugs for a year, for two years, for six months, for two weeks, but it's going to come back. It's a disease. It's a disease. It's like a cold. It's like a cancer. It's a something. It's a disease. There's no cure. Drug companies don't want to work on it. No, my friend. It's not a disease. It's not a disease. It's a choice. Tough choice. There is a physical element to it, of course. There is a physical addiction to it. But that passes. Sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's a few weeks. But that passes. What gets you back after you no longer have the physical addiction? Why does a former crack addict that stopped for three years go back to doing crack. He doesn't feel the urge. There's no urge. There's no physical addiction anymore. It's gone. It's long gone. It's as if he never did it before. Why does a smoker, a guy that smokes cigarettes like I used to, didn't smoke for three years. Next thing you know, he smokes a cigarette. Now, as a former smoker, I can tell you, it's disgusting. The first cigarette is the most disgusting, hideous thing in the world. The first cigarette I ever smoked when I was 17, 18 years old, like an idiot I smoked in college, because I had nothing to do and my friend was smoking. So I was like, oh, I'll smoke too. It was disgusting back then. And if I pick it up today, I'd vomit. But why do you smoke? It was always disgusting. Just that you got used to the disgustingness. You got used to it. It never became delicious. It was always disgusting. But you got used to it. Now, if you stop smoking, not for a year, not for two years, not for five years, you stop smoking for a week. How about this? 
You stop smoking for the Chag. Two days. Two days. Show me one smoker that can tell you the first cigarette after the Chag tastes good. One smoker. He's a liar if he says yes. It tastes disgusting. Why do you? Why is everyone after Yom Kippur run after the cigarette like it's like air? It's disgusting. The first cigarette, and that's after twenty five hours, because there's a nicotine addiction. It's not that it tastes good. So you're addicted to the nicotine. But if you stop smoking for a week, it passes. Two weeks, even more. So after three weeks, it's like you never smoked before. Obviously, your body's going to take time to heal and so on, but the point is, the physical addiction is gone. So why does somebody, after a few weeks, a few months, or a few years of not smoking cigarettes or not smoking crack or doing anything else, why do they come back if there's no physical addiction anymore? Because the whole time, the whole time, it wasn't a physical addiction that was keeping you in it. The whole time, it was a mental addiction. It was a Yetzirah. There was a movie in the old days I watched, maybe 15, 20 years ago. The uh, actor says a uh, amazing quote. Says, The greatest thing the devil has ever done is convince the world that he doesn't even exist. It's a genius quote. It's exactly what's happening today with all of this drug addiction and everything else, every other form of Yetzirah. People think that we're all poor people, he's addicted, poor guy. He has to make a choice. Yes, it's a tough choice. I'm, I'm not discounting it. It's a tough choice to stop doing something you're physically addicted to. But the physical addiction passes. Once it passes, move on. You continuing to call him a miskin is going to get him back there. You continuing to telling him he has a sickness, he has a disease, is going to justify his own yetzerah saying, See, I told you you're sick. Look, she's saying you're sick. I've been telling you you're sick. Just go back to it now with it. Go back to doing some more, snort some more, do some more. You're enabling the guy that has a strong yetzerah to tell him, Yeah, you're yetzerah. The whole time, yeah, your yetzerah is right. I agree with him. You give him the Yetzirah high five. And on top of the fact you give him the Yetzirah high five, you're paying the lady 500 bucks for counseling. It's all choice, my friends. You have to choose wisely. Once you understand it's Yetzirah, it's curable. But as long as you think that drug addiction is is a disease... It's incurable. There's no cure. Even if you stop, there's still no cure. Even if you stop, always in the right, in the back of your mind, you're always going to think, when am I going to go back? When am I going to go back? When am I going to go back? And your whole life is going to be surrounded by just thinking about this drug. And oh, I'm, I didn't do it today. I didn't do it tomorrow. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And every day you're counting the days you didn't do it. But who wants to live like that? Who wants to live thinking about the stuff they're not doing? It's miserable. That's like the poor guy counting the rich guy's money all day for a living. Who wants to do that? 
Why? Why would you put yourself through that torture? Just remind yourself, it's a choice. It's a bad choice. It has no good consequences whatsoever. No one ever says, thank God I do drugs. No one's ever written a book and saying, you know what? What a great life to do drugs. You should do that too. No one says that. No one writes a book. No one says, oh, I have the life achievement award. I've done more drugs than everyone else. Maybe they would have written a book if they actually survived, but they all died. No one ever says, I'm so proud of my dad for doing drugs. No one says that. Why? Because bad. But if you keep telling people that they're sick, they're never going to get cured. So the first and most important thing is to understand that these, this addiction is a choice. It's a yetzerah. And Baruch Hashem, none of you are into drugs, but I say this because that addiction is no different than any one of our addictions. Whether it's our addictions to money, our addictions to women, our addictions to sports, our addictions to anything else. Unless you're addicted to Torah, it's not good for you. So each and every single one of us has an addiction, but the Yetzirah inside us is saying, no, no, you're sick, you're sick. You're sick. I mean, come on, you've been wasting seed since you're 13 years old. You're going to stop now? How are you going to leave me? What am I going to do without you? You've been wasting seed every day like clockwork for 15 years. How are you going to leave me? What are you going to do with that hand? What are you going to do with the girl? What are you going to do with your life? Yes, a is convincing you you're sick. You have a sickness. You have, you have, you have me scared. You're a young guy. You're single. When you get married, you'll stop. Or your wife is not happy with you. Or your wife is not giving you enough. Or your wife is pregnant. Or your wife... Every Yetzirah is going to convince you in his own Rashaim way. That's why the Gemara says he has seven names. Satan has seven names. Why? I'll come to you in different ways. You're, not, you're never going to know who's coming. Think it's your best friend, it's Satan. Think it's your wife, it's Satan. Think it's your kid, it's Satan. You think it's your boss, it's Satan. He's going to come to you in seven different ways. You're never going to know how he's coming to you. And he's always going to convince you. Why? Because you don't even know he exists. You don't even know he exists. Why? Because everybody's telling you you're sick. Everyone is telling you, Mishkia, 29 years old. What do you mean you're not going to waste seed? What, do you, what am I supposed to do? Keep it all inside? I'm going to explode. Somebody told me this the other day. Come on, Rabbi, what do you mean? I have to keep I'm single. I'm 29 years old. Or you expect me to keep it? I'm going to explode. convinces himself that he's really sick. And the public at large agrees with him. The psychiatrists agree. The friends agree. Everyone agrees. And sometimes agreement comes from silence. He goes to a rabbi and he says, no, do you agree with Rabbi Reuven about wasting seed? Like I made the halakha. I made a three-hour shiur about it. They made me the foremost expert on it. He goes to the rabbi, do you agree with him? No, no, just worry about other things. What do you mean worry about other things? He's wasting seed. All of the shefai in this world, all of the goodness that Hashem wants to give him is gone in the garbage. 
Hashem wants to give him Kedusha. Hashem wants to give him money. Hashem wants to give him Zivug. Hashem wants to give him children. Hashem wants to give him everything. He loves him. It's his son. But he just wasted it in the bathroom. And you told him, don't worry about it. Worry about something else. Learn some Tanya. Learn some Zohar. He's ruining it. He's ruining everything. And you're enabling him by not saying anything. By saying, no, worry about something else. No, my friend, worry about that. Stop doing it. At least try. At least don't tell the guy he's not he's, he's, he's okay. So sometimes silence is the worst medicine. It enables us to continue. Every single one of us has a different addiction. Every one of us. We have to start learning how to realize that it's the Yetzirah, really. And not some disease. Not, I'm born that way. You know, I'm always angry. You know, I'm, that's, that's kind of, you know, I'm Sephardic. Come on, I'm always angry. That's what people tell me. I'm always angry. You know, it's okay. It's like, if you're Sephardic, it's okay to be angry. It's like, it's part of being Sephardic. It's okay to be angry. Or it's like, nah, you know, come on. It's, money's a little tight. What tight? Just made a million dollars last year. What tight? No, but you know, it's hard for us. We're from this place or that place. Oh, you know, we, I can't stop looking. It's part of our tradition. We look. What do you mean? It's part of nothing. You create it. See, Yetzirah is convincing you you're sick. He's convincing you that it's okay and you can't do anything about it. You have to stop. You have to, you have to arrive at Pesach with a new mindset. Stop making excuses for the Yetzirah. He already has enough. Don't help him. I know it's hard. Trust me. I'm telling this to myself more than to you. But at least don't help him. And don't listen to people that help him too. He has a lot of soldiers. Some of them have beards and hats. Some of them are the doctors. Some of them are close people. Sometimes, sometimes they're family. And they're all going to try to be his soldiers even if they don't mean to. Because they also don't know he exists. He fooled them too. What do you think? They don't have an addiction? It's not just drugs we're worrying about. That's what Akavya is telling you. First and foremost, remember, the trigger to all of your problems is that you inside, you're making excuses. Why are you making excuses? Because you think you beat the system. No, no, I'm just going to smoke weed. I'm never going to get the coke. I'm never going to go to whatever other drug there is out there. Heroin or meth or all this garbage tinofit. Garbage that people put into their mind, into their body. No, no, I'm not. I'm just going to smoke weed. Just a little sweet. Come on, it's no big deal. Come on. Didn't, uh, didn't Moshe Rabbeinu smoke a little weed or something? You know, people make up all types of stupid stories. Didn't, didn't they smoke on Mount Sinai a little bit? Didn't it say Samim? Can they boast of this? Uh, all this stuff? Huh? One of the people of October is Kenebosa. One of these stuff they say is... Samim. It says Samim. Yeah, Samim means it's incense. But they say that one specifically, 
Can it also mean cannabis or like the research? No one smoked weed in the Torah. No one smoked weed in the Torah. Anyone that says that is a kofer, rasha, merusha, and I wish Hashem, I wish Hashem punish him on the spot. No one smoked, no one put tinofit into their body. It's a different story. Taking it as a medicine, putting it as a cream, something like that, it's perfectly fine use. If you actually have a sickness, use it. People, you think all these kids that go to the California stores all sick? All of them have back pains. They're 18 years old. He has back pains. The kid just stopped playing uh, Nintendo last year. What back pains does he have? It's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. Listen, Torah says you're not allowed to put yourself in a state where you cannot be in front of Hashem. Simple. Listen, when I first heard that smoking cigarettes is not allowed, I made every excuse in the world. I'm like, no, but come on. But this, but that, but this guy, but this rabbi smoked, but that rabbi smoked. It says, you know, okay, protect your soul, protect this, protect that, but listen, it's not allowed. Why? You're ruining yourself. That's not what Hashem wants. Even if you say that smoking cigarette you already addicted, your grandfather did, and all the excuses in the world that people make, the reality of it is, ask yourself one question. Is it Ritzon Hashem? Is it what God wants from you? If God wanted to choose you to be the Gdola Dol, He wanted you to be Mashiach. He wanted you to be the one that delivers the message. He wanted you to be Kodesh Kodashim. Would He want you to show up with a cigarette? Would He want you to show up with a joint? Stuyot. Point is, if it helps you quit, it helps you quit. Supposed to be a means to an end, means to an end, not something you're supposed to stay with. Same concept with someone that's addicted psychologically to marijuana. You have to understand. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know the Yetzirah is telling you you're addicted to it, or it's fun, or it's allowed, or it's whatever. Bottom line is, when you smoke weed, you're not allowed to pray. Why? Because the equivalent of being drunk. Why aren't you allowed to pray? Because when you pray, you're acknowledging that Hashem Itbarach is in front of you. But if you read one ounce of Torah, you would know that Hashem is in front of you all the time. That's why you have to be modest even inside the bathroom. So what makes you think you're allowed to smoke when you're not praying? What makes you think that you're allowed to be drunk whenever you feel like it, except specific holidays that Chazal says you're allowed to be. You always have to be prepared as if Hashem is next to you. Why? Because He is next to you. So, for anyone that's making excuses for themselves of why they smoke cigarettes, or why they smoke weed, or why they smoke hash, or why they do drugs, or why they have 15 girlfriends, all of the stuff, it's all excuses. I know it's hard to quit. I know it's hard to stop. I know it's hard to change. I know. I know, I'm not, I wasn't born yesterday, I had to go through it also. And still going through it. But you gotta do it. At the very least, we need to know what the truth is. The truth is, we're making excuses. The truth is, we think we can beat the system. Come on, deep down inside. You don't really believe you beat the system? But deep down inside, seriously. Don't you really think like, come on, Hashem. Come on, I study Gemara, that's you me. You don't let go of the little smoking, little this, little that that I did, right? It's no big deal, come on, Hashem. I studied every day. I went to Shul Torah with Yeroni. He was speaking for three hours. 
I went, every time somebody tells me they watch my shiur, they tell me how much time it was. It's the funniest thing in the world. Yeah, I watched that shiur. I'm like, which shiur? The one for two hours and 42 minutes. How am I supposed to know which one is two hours and 42 minutes? It's like, my must like, misirut nefesh for them to watch me for two hours and 42 minutes. Or the one, no, no, I watched that other shiur, the one for three hours. I don't know, every other shiur is three hours now, Baruch Hashem. I don't count the time. I don't even know how long we've been talking today. But the point is that people always tell me how much time. So what, they're going to go up to Shemaim? To me, it makes me laugh. But you think it's going to make Hashem laugh? No, he's not going to make Hashem laugh. No, come on, Hashem. I went to Yaron's Shur for three hours, once a week for a year straight. I could smoke a little, right? I could go with a non-Jewish girlfriend, right? It's not correct to smoke weed. That's a good Yetzirah. That's a great... Ah, your Yetzirah is genius. That's a Yetzirah that's genius. What is he saying now? Listen. Listen. Okay, it's not allowed. I agree. Rabbi said, it's not allowed to do this. Fine. But it's not karet, like he was saying before. Michal Shabbat, karet. Ochel chametz, karet. Malbim berabim, en Smoking weed, it's not so bad. So, okay, so let's do that one. What a genius Yetzirah it is. He tells you, no, no, come on. Just do the small sins. Do the small sins. But the reality of it is, that the small sins are the doorway to the big ones. We can't be all fully clean. We all have our weaknesses. You have a very, you have a, your, your Yetzirah has a PhD. <laughs> PhD. You, you, you've been missing Shurim, my friend. YouTube is not helping you. YouTube is not helping you. You have to come to the Shurim. This way I know your Yetzirah a little bit better. But I'm just curious because other religious people are telling me not to smoke. How many of those... Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Beards, hats, whatever. Beards are free. Hats, even cowboys had. The question is, how many of those so-called religious people are going to show up to your judgment day? How many of them? Oh, so what are you going to say? But he did it and he did it? Not for me. I ask this because I'm telling others... Has nothing to do... No, no. You have to be worried about your own neshama. Your own neshama... First, you worry about your own neshama. Once our own neshama is at peace, we're doing good, Hashem does the rest of the work for us. Then we already, Hashem gives us the siyat lishmaya of what to tell other people. You won't have questions. So first and foremost, Akavya is telling us, know the root of your problem. Know the beginning. The beginning of all your problems is that deep down inside, you don't believe. Deep down inside, you think you beat the system. Why? Because you're arrogant. You're an arrogant fool. But for what? Why are you arrogant? Why do you think you're full God? You came from a putrid seed. You came from something disgusting. Tinofit. What do you have to be arrogant about? So he's going right off the bat. He's telling you, you're already starting off with the left foot forward. Next, if you didn't get that yet, this is my friend. Just in case your perspective is still distorted, just in case your Yetzirah is still working hard and you can't beat him, remind yourself of the day you're going to die. As the Gemara Masechet Brachot, page 5 says, Yetzirah comes to you, learn Torah. If that's not enough, say Kriyat Shema. If that's not enough, remind them of the day he's going to die. So first it says, learn Torah so you know that there's Hashem Barach. 
If that's not enough, say Shema Yisrael, Hashem, help me, I can't beat this Yetzirah, it's too big on me. But if all you hear is silence, like Am Yisrael heard, right before the first plague came, they were looking for Moshe Abedu. Where's Moshe? Couldn't find him. Couldn't find him. You came here, you told Paul you're going to do this, this and that. He made it even worse on us, and then you left. They didn't realize it's a test. They didn't realize it's the biggest test. So all you did, Shema Yisrael, it didn't work. Silence. So remind them the day he's going to die. Why remind them the day he's going to die? Because anyone that is mitbonin, meaning starts thinking deeply of the day they're going to die, they start thinking about what's going to happen. All of a sudden, all the money you have is meaningless. This is the reason why when they bury the dead, they bury them in a sheet. In a sheet. And the sheet doesn't have any pockets. You know why it doesn't have any pockets? Because you can't put any money in it. You can't take that money with you. Money stays home. Kids take it. Wife takes it. Her boyfriend also. You're not taking any money. You're not taking any money. There's no money. The car stays there. House stays there. Everything stays here. You and me in a bed sheet with no pockets. What happens then? Shemirachem. The maggots, the worms, they start having a blast. And that's why Chazal says, anyone that eats a lot, all he's doing is giving the benefit, he's concentrating on his physical fulfillment in order to really give a nice party to the maggots. He's fulfilling, he's fulfilling their wishes. If he was a tzaddik, if he was a tzaddik, they can't touch him. If he was a tzaddik, he's a tzaddik. I don't think that many fat people are tzaddikim. There's a few in the Gemara, they were extremely fat. It was 2,000 years ago. No, a, uh, the, 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 son, the son of a, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. No, Rabbi if Lazar. He Bariye, if he would stand over a house, a horse and a wagon going underneath his stomach. No, you're talking about Rabbi Elazar ben Shimon. He was a Sadiq. Rabbi Elazar ben Shimon you're talking about, not Abaya. But anyway, the point is is that when someone is fully concentrated on their physical being, they're not doing themselves any justice. They're not helping themselves all they're doing is they're making the dream come true of the maggots and the worms. They're making their life more difficult. But even more so than that, the Mishnah is saying, Before it says that you're going to dust, worms, maggots, it says, Where are you going? Meaning it's, a, it's an active process. It's not something that ends. Meaning someone has to think about this on a regular basis. Where are you going? With every decision that you make, where are you going with this decision? 
When you wake up in the morning and you are about to press the snooze button, where are you going with that decision? When you go work for the illegal company, where are you going with that decision? When you go and want to cheat on someone, something, where are you going with that decision? When you give staka, where are you going? Ganeden Genom. Hazal is saying to you, with every decision that you make, you, have, you must ask yourself this question. Where am I really going with this decision? Ganeden Genom. Because eventually, the worms, the maggots, they have fun with my body, but the real me comes out. Everything turns to dust. But the real me has to deal with the consequences. The real me goes in front of the king of kings and has to show up and starts reporting, what have I done? First and foremost, each one of you needs to know that you need to teach Torah for 40 days straight. Some say 180 days, some say 70. Point being is you have to be able to talk for a long time. But not shtuyot, and you can't repeat yourself. Talk in Shemaim, your trial, 12 months trial. Every one of us has 12 months trial. After 120 of a 12 month trial, during that time, part of that time, you have to spend teaching Torah. All the Torah that you've learned during your life, you have to teach it now. Can't repeat the same thing. Okay, oh yeah, but not sure. He said the same thing and not sure. Does that count? No, it doesn't count. Chidushim, non-stop chidushim, non-stop chidushim. Are we going to remember anything we learned here, or we could forget when we get upstairs? Depends. Did you learn it, or did you just listen? If you finish it three times. Now you need to finish it four. So now, we have to ask ourselves, why are we even arrogant? Why do we think we need to beat the system? We came from a repulsive, foul-smelling drop. In reality, the only thing we're proud of is this body that's not even ours. The body that's smart, the body that's good-looking, the body that's rich, the body... Something that's not even ours. And in reality, the only thing we should be concerned with is the bill we're going to have to pay. The day we have to meet the King of Kings, the one who said, and everything was created. page 10 says a person by the name of Elazar ben Durdia who committed every sin known to man there wasn't a woman that he wasn't with went with all types of prostitutes he had money and he had a big yetzara one day a high priced prostitute that he had to travel for Tells him something that he's never heard before. Tells him, somebody like you can never do tshuva. 
she's not exactly a tzaddikah. But when the rasha tells you you're a rasha, you have a problem. I know somebody that one time he got arrested. He tells me, it was the first time I got arrested. I didn't think it was such a big deal. Got arrested, big deal. Until the criminal that was also in a cell with me told me, what are you doing here? We're all criminals, what are you here for? And I realized I'm not a criminal, I just got into a fight or something. Whatever he did. He's like, that's when I realized there was something wrong with the picture. That's when I realized I don't belong here. When the prostitute is telling you you can't do tshuva, you have a serious problem, my friend. So Elazar ben Duldiyah took it to heart and ran to the mountains. And started begging at the sky and asking the moon and the sun to pray for him. And they said, we're sorry. We have to pray for ourselves. So he screams to the sky, pray for me. Sorry, we have to pray for ourselves. Screams to the mountains, pray for me. Sorry, first we have to pray for ourselves. So Chazal, the Bet Levi, asks a question. It's a very good question. What do they have to pray for? What sin does the, do the mountains need to pray for? Okay, fine. The sun is an angel. It honors Hashem every day. The moon is an angel. It honors Hashem. Everything is an angel. Fine. But they're saying to Elazar ben Dodiah that they have to pray for tshuva. What tshuva do they have to do? What? They went with the prostitutes. They stole. What did they do? So Beto Levi says an amazing chidush. He says, every single action that you do affects the world around you. How do we know? In the door of the flood, the generation of the flood of Noah, Chazal explains to us that Hashem had to destroy the entire world all the way up to the point that He had to take out, I believe it was six or nine feet of ground and destroy that too. The actual ground you have to destroy. Not just the people, not just the animals, but the actual ground itself you have to destroy. Why? What did the ground do? What did the animals do? So the animals all became residents of San Francisco, became homosexuals. And aside from being homosexuals, they started going from species to species. Zebra was with the lion, the lion was with the uh, horse, Shem Achem. Everyone was going, nature was going against itself. Aside from that, the ground was continuing to swallow the blood of murder, which is either murder from physically murdering somebody or murder from wasting seed, hiding the crimes of the people. How did all of this happen? 
because man is the reason why Hashem created the world, the actions of man affect the nature around him. Because man was so evil, the world around him became evil. The animals became evil, the trees became evil, the ground became evil, everything became evil. So Hashem had to destroy all of it. Because if it was just man, Hashem would just destroy man. What did the tree do? He said the tree became evil too. So when Elazar ben Dodia came to the mountain, he said, pray for me. He says, what well, pray for you? All the sins you made, I have to do tshuva now. Look what you did to me. I have to do tshuva because of your sin. And he's not joking. He's not exaggerating. You wasted seed, I have to do tshuva. You know how many times people suffer without even knowing why, but in reality it's because of somebody else's sin? Sometimes you have appetite. You want to eat something. You want to eat, I don't know, carrot. You want to eat a uh, cucumber. You're so hungry, forget to pray. How many times do you eat? Forgot to pray. Forget to thank Hashem. So what do you do? You eat. Take a bite of the apple. Take a bite of the carrot. Take a bite of something. You probably never noticed it. But sometimes it happens. Shortly after you get into a little kriza. Shortly after you get a little angry. It doesn't always happen, obviously, but it happens. Shortly after you get into a little, you're a little upset about something. Your mood's a little different. All of a sudden, curse comes out. You're not a guy that curses. You're not a girl that curses. You're classy. What happened? Where did this curse come from? What happened? Every single one of the words the holy books say goes up to Shemaim. It comes back down with the rain. The rain goes on the ground. Where does the rain go? It goes to your fruits, your vegetables, the food you eat. Sometimes those words are curses. They come back down. They go into the fruit. And the only thing that can protect you is the blessing. If you get the bless, you have no protection. No shield. Meaning, that F word that the guy said goes into your mouth. It has to come back out. The anger he had has to come in, has to come out. Whose fault is it? It's your fault. Why? Could have blessed. Could have just said, thank you, Hashem. Give me a shield. You're not really saying thank you, Hashem. In reality, the thank you, Hashem is, please protect me, Hashem. Please protect me from me. Please protect me from him and I don't even know he exists. So the mountains were telling... Elazar ben Dodiah, what'd you do to us? You want us to pray for you? We have to pray for ourselves. Anyone that's watching that doesn't believe in this stuff says, okay, it's all nice. It's a nice story. Give me some proof. There's a very famous proof. A Japanese doctor or scientist, uh, Dr. Masuro Imoto over two decades ago wanted to prove that we're able to affect the world around us 
simply by our words. But how do you prove such a thing? So he decided to take petri dishes, little plastic dishes of water, and on one of them, say nice things. You're beautiful, you're cute, you're funny, you're smart, all types of nice compliments. Another petri dish full of water to curse it out. I hate you, I'm going to kill you, all types of awful things to say. And then freeze it at negative 25 degrees Celsius. And then look it up in a microscope with 200 to 500 times. And the discovery was earth shattering. Anyone that wants to see something amazing, the best in my opinion, the most obvious proof that there's an intelligent design is simply by looking at snowflakes under a microscope. And you can look this up. You don't actually have to have a microscope anymore. You can look it up at everything at Rabbi Google. Go to Google, type in snowflakes under a microscope and see what happens. And I'll show you pictures of what a snowflake looks like under a microscope. The design of each one is out of this world. It's Mamas like a, the most genius architect in history, a genius designer in history, just made this snowflake. It's a snowflake. And you'll never find two snowflakes that are identical. Each one of them is more beautiful than the next and they never look alike. They're all different. Each one has a fingerprint. Recently, science discovered that each drop of water actually has its own fingerprint. Each snowflake has its own design. So now, how do you look? You see through a microscope. So Dr. Imoto, the Japanese non-Jewish doctor, non-Jewish scientist, wanted to see what happens to water when I curse it, water when I compliment it. When he saw the water that he complimented under the microscope after freezing it at negative 25 degrees Celsius, he sees the beautiful designs of the crystals of the water that are similar to what? Snowflakes. Stars of David, stars like this, stars like that. Beautiful, amazing stars. Amazing. Now it's time for the other one. Also, the ice looks exactly the same. This is a petri dish with ice. This is a petri dish with ice. They look exactly the same on the surface. The naked eye can't tell the difference. Unless he labeled it, he wouldn't know the difference. So now he looks at the water that he froze, but he cursed at that water. Looks exactly the same. Clear water, everything is the same. But under the microscope, it looks like death. Dark, ugly shapes and not ugly because of bad taste ugly by anyone's definition strange shapes round weird and very very dark showing us that just simply the words we're saying had an effect on water for anyone who's thinking Scientists also said that most of our body is water. So if the dirty language we use 
affects the water outside of us simply by cursing at it. It becomes dark and ugly and disgusting instead of beautiful, perfect stars. What is it doing to the stars inside us? What is it doing to the water inside us? A chemist student by the name of Tomer Rabiav attended some of Imoto's lectures and wanted to test it himself. But he wanted to test it differently. He wanted to take white beans and see what happens to them. So he took three beans. One bean, he would water it with regular water and then give it compliments. The second bean, he would water it with regular water and curse it out. And the third bean, he'd water it with regular water and retailing psalms. The findings were even more amazing than he thought himself. Between the compliments and the curses, the findings were identical to what Imoto found. The one he gave compliments to, the bean grew up to be beautiful. Quickly over the next couple of weeks, it grew to have a nice little stem. The one he cursed at, the bean died. Didn't grow anything. Just died. But the one he read Psalms to, grew at nearly four times the size of the one that he gave compliments to. Showing us even further that the Vrai Kodesh have even higher significance than anything else. And for anyone who doubts it, there was also a physicist by the name of Dr. Arik Navik, or Nave, that tested it exactly the same way, tested both of these tests himself, and got the same results, and even better yet, each and every single one of you at home can do the same test. You just have to have a neutral environment, meaning you have to make sure that you're the only one present next to these petri dishes or these beans or whatever you're growing, and no one else is interfering. Point being is that we learn here from Chazal, from Gemara Abu Dazara, page 10, from nearly 2,000 years ago, that the simple words that come out of our mouth have an effect. Elazal ben Dordia realized that his situation was hopeless, and the only thing that he has left, now that he finally realized that not only has he sinned, but the only thing that led him to sin was his arrogance. His arrogance that made him believe that he could beat the system. His arrogance that made him believe that he is the system. He realized, I was wrong, I only came from a putrid drop. And now that this prostitute is reminding me that I won't be able to do tshuva, I realized that I'm also going to die soon. A year, five years, ten years, fifty years, it's all soon. Your life is like a corridor. Before you know it, it's gone. Then real life starts. He realized this. Everything hit him once. What do I have to do? I'm going to have to go meet my maker. What am I going to tell him? I went with every prostitute. I never prayed. I never did kiyat 
I never thanked him. I used the tools that he gave me against him. What am I going to tell my maker? And his hopelessness, realizing that no one would even pray for him, not even the mountains, made him realize that the only thing he can do is cry himself to death. And that's what he did. He cried until he died. And Chazal says that a bat kol, a heavenly voice came out from Shemaim, saying, Olam Abba welcomes Rabbi Elazar ben Durdia. He was not a tani, he was a rasha merusha. That he did tshuva. He did tshuva, complete tshuva in a moment. But the tshuva that he did, a lot of people say, use this as an example. See, somebody can do tshuva in a moment. It says the Rabbi Udanasi, Rabbi, heard the bat call also. Heard the bat call. He knew. Elazar ben And he says, some people worked their whole life 70 years to hopefully get a place in Olam Abba. And some people earn it in a moment. And some even have the benefit of having Shemaim call them Rabbi. How did this guy get it? Rabbi? How? Can you cry yourself to death? Can't even cry myself to sleep. <laughs> exactly my point. The tshuva that he did is not something that's feasible. The tshuva that he did is not something that is even possible in our generation. The tshuva that he did was something that literally, I mean, crying yourself to death in an instant, going from Rasha Merusha to Tzadik, Yesod Olam. It's not, uh, it's not normal. Point being is that once he realized that he has to pay Din V'Cheshbon, he woke up really, really quickly. The last thing I would say and we'll finish. We'll, if questions, we can answer them. Is that this whole process of destroying your own arrogance, destroying your own evil inclination? It's a process. It doesn't happen like Rabbi Azabinodia. It's a process to destroy it little by little, step by step, block by block. And Akavya bin Menhalel is telling you that the only way you can really do it is with these three steps. Because if you realize the source of all of your evil inclination, you're already in a good start. You're already going to know the diagnosis. If you realize that the outcome of all of your evil inclination will always be against you. Where you're going, you're going to a bad place. 
You go into a bad place. You do drugs, you're gonna go to a bad place. You steal, you're gonna go to a bad place. You cheat, you're gonna go to a bad place. Worms, maggots, bad stuff's gonna happen. Akavya is telling you, step number two already tells you, it's not good. You made a mistake. And if you still ignore step number two, realize step number three, which is you're gonna have to pay for it. Now, some people don't like being reminded of their past. They don't like to know where they came from. Recently, we learned Megillat Estel. And Megillat Estel, the story begins with a party that Achashverosh had. And to show off the beauty of his wife to everyone, he asked his wife to come, his Rashait wife, Vashti, to come and show her body naked in front of everyone. And it's not that Vashti was a tzaddikah or anything, she was a reshait, merushait. But Hashem punished her by giving her tzarat and also having her grow a tail and some say even a horn. And she was embarrassed of herself and she didn't want to come out. As the story goes, he got really upset. Everyone warmed it up a little bit. Especially Haman. How could the queen not listen to the king? Kill her. That's the basic pshat. But the Gemara goes deeper. The Gemara goes into what really happened. What really took Achashverosh from thinking that Vashti was everything... You didn't just pick Vashti just because she was a nice girl. He honored her. He respected her. She was of the descendants of who? Nebuchadnezzar. She came from a royal family. She wasn't just some girl he found in the park. So how is it possible that he decides to kill her? Because Vashti when he asked her to come and she said no and he got upset, he said, hey, hey, remember buddy, I come from Nebuchadnezzar. I come from royal lineage. Where do you come from? Used to clean my father's horses. Only reason you're king is because you found the treasure. You found the treasure and you bought yourself to kinghood. The guy that started a pigsty and became a millionaire all of a sudden wanted to go on TV and tell people how to make money. And then one of the contestants said, hey, hey, you still have mud on your shoe. Still have a little lichluch on your face. He doesn't want to be reminded of that. He doesn't want to be reminded that his day job was to deal with pigs. Because he thinks of himself as a businessman now. I'm a king. I'm important. Chasverot says, how dare you remind me of my past? How dare you remind me that I came from a putrid seed? Even more so to expand on the same point, the same exact thing happened with the Rasha Haman. Haman Rasha, according to the Gemara, was richer than the Chasverot. He had more money than the king. 
And the Gemara says that the king, actually the Megillat Esther says, that Achashverosh was the king of 127 countries. This is more powerful than anything we have in the world today. Obama had 50 states. They thought of him as king of the world. In reality, he would be one of the servants for Achashverosh. 127 countries paying him taxes. Haman had more money than him. What does Haman get upset about? He sees this Jew, learning Gemara, not acknowledging him. Doesn't bow to him, doesn't say hello to him. And instead, what does he do? He shows him his necklace. What are you showing him the necklace for? What are you showing him? Why is he so upset? The Midrash explains that before Haman became Haman and Mordechai became Mordechai, they were both sergeants in the army. Each had their own camp. The food was delivered. Haman had no control over his soldiers. Soldiers ate all the food. Mordechai taught his soldiers Midot. Mordechai was part of the Sanhedrin. He was number four in the Sanhedrin. He knew over 70 languages. He's teaching him Midot, teaching him Musar, teaching him how to be human beings. He says, hey, you have to eat a little bit today because we're going to need food tomorrow. We don't know how long we're going to be in battle. This is not a uh, 7-Eleven we can go to in the middle of the night to get some potato chips. Once it goes, it goes. Eat a little today to survive. Control your Yetzirah. Think about tomorrow. Don't just think about today. Think about the outcome. Ezeu chacham, anolad. Who is wise? Someone who sees what's born. So Mordechai's people had food left. Plenty of it. Aman comes to him and says, listen, we ran out of food. Mordechai says, it's your problem. Aman says, yeah, but if I don't give them food tomorrow, they're all going to kill me. Mordechai says, it's your problem. Should have taught them midot. He says, yeah, but I don't want to die. I'm willing to sell myself to you after this war, I'll be your slave. And they signed a contract. And Haman signed a contract to be Mordechai's slave. But he didn't honor the contract once they left. And he got up the corporate ladder, if you will. Hashem used him as a tool to wake up Am Yisrael. And he got up the corporate ladder, became number two to the king of Hashverosh. But every single time he passed by Mordechai, Mordechai reminded him, hey, by the way, buddy, with all the money you have and all the kavod you have, it's all mine, you're my slave. If I show this to the king, he'll enforce it. You're my slave. All your money is really mine. And this drove him crazy. Why? Reminded him that you came from a putrid seed. You came from a repulsive state. You have nothing to be so proud about. So it didn't matter about the money. It didn't matter about the kavod. It didn't matter about anything. Why? Because he always couldn't deal with the fact that this Jew really knew the truth. But that's what we need to remind of ourselves. Remind ourselves of. Haman was a rasha. He didn't want to listen. His future wasn't bright. Achash was also a rasha. Even though 
Later on, he let us, Hashem softened his heart. A kid came out who ended up building the Bet HaMikdash. But nonetheless, he wasn't any less anti-Semitic than Haman before the miracle started. He wasn't a tzaddik by any stretch of the imagination. Why? They forgot the past. And they didn't want to be reminded of it. What Hashem is telling each and every single one of us in Pesach, remember where you came from. Because if you remember where you came from, you're at least giving yourself a chance to have a good future. Any questions? Yeah, you talked about uh, wasting seed a lot. But all the punishments and all the problems, but you never really touched on the benefits. I, like I said Shefa. But there's like a hundred more benefits I heard. Like it really motivates. Like if you if you fix this, you could achieve all your goals really. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I said all the goodness that you can get, all the, uh, you can get panasa, you can get a, uh, a lot of good things if you don't waste seed. The reality of it is that the Mishnah itself says you shouldn't serve Hashem because of the benefit. You should serve Hashem simply because He said so. Even more so, you should serve Hashem and do what He said simply because you don't want to be a sinner. Akavya also, one of the uh, stories that it says in the uh, Mishnah is that they also tried to make him Avbedin. They tried to make him Avbedin, and uh, he refused. Why would he refuse? I mean, Akavya, he's, called, he's not even called rabbi. He's a higher level than a rabbi. You know, someone that's called by his name, like Shmuel, or Moshe Rabbeinu, or Aaron, or Avram, Yitzhak Yaakov. Someone that's called by their name is considered higher than a rav. So Akavya, ultimate goal of every tzaddik, ultimate goal of every chacham is to be Avbedin, to be a nasi. He rejected the position. Why did he reject the position? He rejected it because they said, we'll let you be Av Bedin, the top Bedin, but these four halachot, these four laws that you passed, cancel them. And he came up with the coin, he coined the, uh, the, the word, saying, I'd rather be viewed as a fool for my whole life for rejecting such a position, top position. You're rejecting being president. I'd rather be viewed as a fool my entire life than be viewed as a rasha for one moment in Hashem's eyes. So as far as the benefits of not wasting seed, number one, I think most people have heard the benefits plenty because the only thing that people talk about as far as seed is the benefits. Very few actually talk about the downside. And number two, I don't really think people have a real comprehension of understanding of the real benefits of anything mitzvah. I think people react more towards the downside, uh, the loss, than they do to the upside. People are generally react to loss more than they react to gain. Like, for example, one of the main reasons of why, in the uh, you know, in the investment world, why big investors, a lot of big investors, a lot of them, get themselves into a lot of different deals, and it's not because they know a lot about a lot of different deals, but they all have a fear, a fear of missing out. A fear of missing out the next big thing. So people's fear drives them a lot more than their uh, drive for goodness. A guy that has $100 million doesn't need more. He's not, oh, I can't wait till I have 120 But he fears of missing out on a deal. He fears of being the guy that says, ah, you didn't have some Facebook? 
You didn't have some Google. You didn't have some this. You didn't have some that. He fears of being viewed negatively. So in general, fear drives more, gets more of a reaction out of people than uh, than gain does. And uh, you could see it uh, from simply from the uh, results. I mean, listen, there's a million and a half percent more knowledge that some of these rabbis have than I do about wasting seed or many other subjects. They've been studying for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. But some of them don't make one person do tshuva. 20 years you're a rabbi, you didn't make one person do tshuva. How's that possible? In my eyes, in the beginning, I'm like, what are you, why are you a rabbi then? One guy didn't do tshuva. 20 years. What do you do? Why are you a rabbi? What do you, what? Be a doorpost. Or even worse, or even worse, some of them actually help people sin. They help them. So why? For what? Why, what, what? Be a regular job. Be a mailman. Be a teacher. Be, I don't know, be something else. For what? What is this for? Because people focus too much on the gain. They expect Hashem to pay them here. They say, listen, if you do da 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 da, da you're going to get panasa. You do this, this, and this, you're going to get, I don't know, uh, all of these benefits here. But in reality, if you actually read just this Pirkei Avot, you read last week's Pirkei Avot, you read the week before last Pirkei Avot, you read, you read Rambam, you read Marah, you read Torah, five books of Moses, you see that the real reward, reward comes in Ulam Abba. Yeah, you get some reward here. But the Rambam explains that the reward that you get here is not really a reward. It's not the reward for the mitzvah that you did. It's just to enable you to make another mitzvah. You gave tzedakah, Hashem's going to give you more money. Why? Because he says, okay, you want to make tzedakah, so I'll give you more money, so you give more tzedakah. But if the more money he gives you, the less tzedakah you give, he's going to take all the money back. Which actually brings me to a point in regards to a lot of people are asking me now that um, we're right before the holidays, Hashem softens people's heart. Usually before the holidays when they realize that not everybody's fortunate. And, uh, you know, Baruch Hashem, said there is not, it's not cheap. Matzot are not cheap. The wine is not cheap. All of this stuff costs a lot of money. And Baruch Hashem, most, you know, most of us have. But there are some people out there that are tzaddikim, some people that just don't have. Either because they don't have regular jobs and they are evrachim, they learn Torah all day, or they're just not fortunate, they're poor people. And Chazal explains to us that in order for you to really know that you're Jewish, really know that you're one of the descendants of Avraham Avinu, you must make sure that you have a few character traits. Most important, you have to be generous. You have to be generous. Now, when do we think about being generous? When we see an opportunity to give. Your choice of whether to give or not to give is going to determine whether you're really generous or not. Now some people, when they give tzedakah, they make a big deal out of it. Oh, I can't wait to give tzedakah. They announce it on Facebook. They announce it on Twitter. They write emails about it. And finally, when they give tzedakah, $12.18. Yeah, but you made $5,000 last month. $12 is change you got from Walgreens for getting your prescription. Like, what $12? Oh, like they decide what's enough. So there's, there are laws to tzedakah that people need to know. First and foremost, anyone that reads the Gemara, Maseret Rosh Hashanah, and also Maseret Bitzai, as we mentioned earlier today, would know that any money that you spend 
on staka, Hashem gives you back. So whatever Parnassai decides to give you, decides to give you $50,000, decides to give you $100,000, decides to give you a million dollars, whatever he decides to give you, any money you spend on Shabbat, on holidays, and on mitzvot, including tzedakah, Hashem gives it back, is not included as part of your income. Meaning that if you made, if he decided to give you a million dollars, but you decided to give $300,000 in uh, tzedakah, that $300,000 is not deducted from the million. Hashem is going to give you now 1.3 million. When? Sometimes more, sometimes, but the reality is He's going to give it to you. You're going to get it back. That's what emunah is. So there's two forms of staka. There's staka that every single person is obligated to give at least one puta per year. Even a homeless person has to give one puta, which is like one dollar. But there's also something called masel. In a, uh, the, uh, Prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10. It says, So Hashem is saying, bring all the tithes, bring all the maasel, the 10%, into the storage house and let it be sustenance in my temple. Test me, if you will. With, test me with this, said Hashem, Master of Legions. See if I do not open up for you the windows of the heavens and pour upon you the blessing without an end. In so many words, Hashem Ibn is saying, you're not allowed to say, listen Hashem, if you're real, give me a sign. Not allowed. Not allowed to test Hashem. Hashem, if you really want me to do this, or you want me to take this job, give me a sign. Not allowed to do that. Not allowed to look for signs. Hashem said to Avraham Avinu, don't look for signs. Enough with the stars, enough with the signs, not allowed. Even though there is some validity to it, even though there is a way to read the stars, we as Jews are not allowed to look for signs. Not allowed. But, Hashem says, there's one thing that you can do, to test me, but not only can you test me, I write here, I encourage you to test me. Bechanuni, test me. What? Test me now by giving your tithe on a regular basis. When it's tough, when it's not tough, when you have a lot, when you have a little. Test me with the tithe and, sh- and let me show you that the blessing that I give you is up to the point where you're going to say, die, meaning enough Hashem, you've given me so much. Too much much already Hashem, die, die. So what's this tithe? The true tithe, the true ma'asel, is to give 10% of your gross income. Gross income, meaning you make $5,000 for the month, you have to pay $500 in ma'asel, $500. Where it goes to, we'll talk about shortly. But you have to take $500 off the top. That's the true ma'asel. The ma'asel that's more popular today, unfortunately as a result of lack of emunah, is ma'asel off of the net income. I made a small chidush about it some time ago and I talked about the net income as if that's the one it's supposed to be. But in reality, it's supposed to be the gross. It's not supposed to be the net. The net income meaning you have $5,000 in income, but you have 
$3,000 in necessary expenses. Rent, mortgage, your car, gas, food, $3,000. In reality, you have $2,000 left after your expenses. So out of that, you give 10%, which is 10% of $2,000 is $200. So instead of $500, we've dropped to $200. Now, Rav Avadi HaZechet Tzadif Yikadosh Livacha said that giving Maaser is no longer an obligation from the Torah in this generation, in our, in our days since the Bet HaMikdash even. It's no longer an obligation. It's considered a ma'ala. It's considered a something that's going to take you to a higher level. It's mamash testing Hashem and seeing miracles happen. And the way you should do it is from the gross. And, he, and when they asked him, okay, well, what about the net? He says, in our generation, people spend so much money. In reality, if we actually set it from the net as a standard, what people are supposed to do, no one would give myself because no one has any money left. People spend more money than they actually earn. So if we all, if everyone waited, if all of the Bateknesset, the Batemidrash, the Kiruv organizations, the poor people, everyone waited for what you have left after you spend all the money, all your expenses, everyone would die. Every bit Knesset would shut down, every bit Midrash would shut down, everything would shut down. Why? Because everyone lives above their means. So that's why the real Maaser is off the gross, not off the net. We say the net because the level of Emunah today is so low that people think that they're giving the $500. They don't realize they're investing. They don't realize that Hashem pays them back that money. And for the most part... The number one way to show that you actually have real emunah in Hashem Barach is by showing him that you know where your money comes from. People are willing to give their lives away for their money. So if you show Hashem that you realize that where the money comes from, you know it's from him, this already shows that you're close to him. Already shows that you're close to the hand that feeds you. But if, you're hard, if you have a hard time giving, giving money out and you think it's your money, you have to work on your emunah. You have to work on your yelat shamayim. You have to work on everything. You're in level one. Even if you keep Shabbat, you do tefillin, you realize there's a God, fine. But if you still have a hard time giving money, you're in level one. You have, you have a serious, serious issue. So you have to work on it. All of us have something to work on. You have to work on that. So again, so how does it make sense to give money when you know that your expenses are going to be higher? Let's say, for example, you have $5,000 in income and the rabbi says, give $500. But you know that your expenses are also $5,000. So you, that means that if you give the $500, you're going to be short $500. That's where Amunah comes in. Hashem will give you the money some way, somehow. How? That's his business. I see it every month. Every dollar that I get somehow, some way, which is by a miracle of its own, we give 10 to 20%. Sometimes 10, sometimes 20. Usually I try to give more than 10%. Why? Because it's not my money anyway, so might as well give it. Just a messenger. The more, in my experience, the more emunah I have, the more Hashem gives. The harder time, the harder it is for me to give, the more I do it. Why? Because I know I have to kill that Satan. I have to kill that Yetzirah inside. That's when people ask me, oh, you want to get into this business? No. No, you want to be a partner? I'll invest all the money? No. I don't want to go into business. Why? 
because it's my Yetzirah. I don't know if I'll get out. I can't do things half-assed. I can't. If I go into business, I'm going to have to build a company. If I build a company, who knows if I'm going to give lectures anymore. Did I come to the world to, uh, to make money? For what? Can't take it. We just talked about it for the last two hours. Can't take it with me anyway. So for what? Same thing with all of you guys. You have to understand that all the money you have, unless you're using it for something useful, it's bad for you. So this leads to the next point. What do you do with the staka? What do you do with it? You have a million and a half causes. Save the dolphins, save the sharks, save the whales, save the cats, the poor people, the homeless people, the wedding, the uh, keilah, the sefer Torah, the baal tshuva, the CDs. Where do you give the money? What do you do with all this money? Because first and foremost, you realize you didn't come to the world to save ducks. You didn't come to the world to save tigers. You didn't come to the world to save anything. You came to the world to save your own soul and any other Jewish soul that you can, if you could save also a Gentile soul, a Shrecha. But in reality, you didn't come to save tigers. So all of those causes, all of those sicknesses, all of those diseases, they're all wonderful, but there's plenty of other takers. Let them pay for it. It's not a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah to fund a uh, Red Cross. It's not a mitzvah to fund any of these organizations that were actually, if you look at the financials, 98 to 99 cents out of every dollar goes to the executives. It doesn't even go to the cause. And even if it does go to the cause and it, I don't know, gives water to a bunch of people in, in the middle of Africa, somebody else will give it. Your $100 is not going to help them. I'm sorry to tell you, it's not going to help them. They need billions. Bill Gates. We're not Bill Gates. So, point is, is that those causes are not a mitzvah at all. There's no mitzvah whatsoever in saving a tiger. Zero. You get zero credit in Shemaim. If anything, it probably becomes a sin. Because you misuse the tool that Hashem gave you. What did Hashem give you the money for? In order to fulfill the purpose of the world. Purpose of the world being the fulfillment of His Torah. So now there's a few ways of fulfilling His Torah. One is fulfilling the mitzvot and the Torah, which is matanot evyonim, to give money to poor people, widows, converts, a, uh, uh, orphans, people that are poor, people that don't have the ability... That's definitely a righteous cause. There's plenty of people to give to the poor, but if uh, there's never enough, if you have a uh, person you want to give to, and my, my suggestion is, if it's five, ten, twenty dollars, small money, then you just give. Somebody, you know, asks you for something, I think you should give, without really doing much of a background check, simply because it takes too much time and it's not enough money to do a background check. But if it becomes more serious money, a hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, depending on your own level. You should do an investigation before you give. Don't just give to a guy just because he wears ugly clothes. Because the guy with the ugly clothes could be like the homeless guy that used to be next to my house in, uh, you know, in Manhattan. He would take out a wad of hundreds out of his pocket. I'm dead serious. He would take out a wad of hundreds out of his pocket. Maybe five, ten thousand dollars in his pocket. But he was collecting, asking him, quarter, 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 anybody? Quarter, 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 quarter. I remember this for the rest of my life. It's like, quarter, quarter. He'd ask everybody for a quarter, but if you give him a quarter, that's only a quarter. He doesn't even deal with quarters anymore. He deals with dollar bills because he has to get the next hundred. But that was his job. No mitzvah giving it to him. No mitzvah. So you have to investigate. Who are you giving it to? If it's a homeless place, if it's a uh, any type of organization, poor people, so that's one level. Higher level is giving to Jews. So that's the next level. 
ultimate level of tzedakah, ultimate level of ma'asel, is to give towards Torah, fulfilling the Torah. That's the one major. That's the one major place that doesn't have a lot of bracha. Unfortunately, even though there's a lot of bateknesset, there's a lot of sifrei Torah, there's a lot of midrash, there's a lot of kolalim. Unfortunately, there's plenty of avrechim that don't have food to eat, don't have money to pay rent, and plenty of Jews that don't even know what Judaism is. Why? Because the organizations that are funding those people don't have any money or don't have enough. The kolel is begging for, for, for money every month because people don't understand the value of somebody learning Torah 12 hours a day with the exception of a couple of rich people. Most people don't understand why should they give $5,000 a month or $500 a month to some kolels or a bunch of people learning all day. Why? People don't understand that. That's the reason the world exists. Or you tell people, listen, people do tshuva. If people don't do tshuva, Hashem is going to destroy the world. Simple as it gets. Prophet Jeremiah tells us from Hashem Barach, if not for my covenant day and night, I'll cease the rules of the world and destroy it. Meaning, if there's not somebody in the world that's learning Torah, that's fulfilling my Torah 24 hours a day, there's no purpose for the world. So, there's o- the only machloket is which one is number one? Someone that learns Torah or someone that helps get people to do tshuva? Most people say it's the same, same high, they're both the highest level, but they're both number one. Some say the number one is to help people do tshuva. Point being is that if you're going to give tzedakah, you have to look at it as an investor. I was in the investment business for 16 years, that's what I did, I invested in things, and after seeing what the potential is of investing in Kiruv, not only did I invest money in it, but I invested my life and time into it because it's the number one investment. Simple as it gets. It's not a, uh, you know, every time you help somebody do tshuva, you're saving a soul. In Hashem's eyes, you just created him. It's a big deal. So when you're donating $500 to some pouring party or some Hanukkah party that may actually lead to a bunch of sins, you're not getting much of a mitzvah. When you're donating to a Beknesset that already has walls and, and, and barely has a minyan, whatever, I guess it may be a mitzvah, but it's not really much of a, you're not going to Gan Eden for it. You're not going to Gan Eden for funding a uh, Sefer Torah. You're not. I'm sorry. You're just not. I did it. I spent $60,000, $65,000 on a Sefer Torah. I'm not going to Gan Eden for a Sefer Torah. So anyone that's thinking about it or did it, you're not going to Gan Eden. What it did for me, maybe it helped me. Maybe it helped me. I don't know. Maybe it helped me do tshuva. But as far as going to Gan Eden, they're not opening it. Oh, that's the guy. That's your own move and he bought a Sefer Torah. No, that's not me. Definitely not. I already know it now. I wish I would have known it 10 years ago. I would have given it to Avrechim. I would have given it to people that actually do tshuva. Point being is that giving money to the Beknesset is nice, it's good, but in reality, it's not the top investment. Top investment is either help somebody that's fulfilling the Torah, either by actually learning it full time, or by getting people to learn it. Getting people to listen to Hashem. Those are the two most important things, especially today. Especially today. So if you're going to give tzedakah, especially before the Chagim, remember, it's all an investment. Every dollar you have is an investment. You want to invest $18? Good luck to you. Your bank account in Shaman is going to be $18. You want to make sure that your IRA account and your 401k account 
and your bank account and your car account and all those accounts each have 10, 20, 50, 100, $300,000 but your tzedakah account has $12.18, good luck to you. Because the only account that you can bring with you to Shemaim is the $12. Tzedakah account comes with you to Shemaim. So imagine a millionaire, he's got 401k account, $12 million. IRA account, one broker, 50000 IRA with another broker, 450000 This account, that account, car is worth 50000 Another car is worth 150000 House is worth $4 million, And he's got $12 in that Tzedakah account. And he's still got like a piggy, piggy uh, thing in his house that he puts quarters in. He's got $150 in there. So now he's got a total of $162. And he shows up to a long like this. Like a little miskin. A little miskin with $150. Oh, you're rich. What happened to you? Miskin, what happened? I left all the money over there. You want to be that miskin? Good luck to you. Good luck to you. You want to be miskin in Shemayim? Good luck to you. You think you need the money here? You'll use it here. Until you can't. If you believe in Hashem, you have to believe in Him all the time. Not sometimes. Next question. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen. Chak Sameach, everyone.